Hey everyone, Happy New Year, and welcome to another episode of Cinemusts, the podcast that debates the must-see status of the films included in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. I'm the captain of this sturdy old jalopy, Mike Emmel, and I'm very excited to be joined on today's episode by the world's greatest detective and third greatest projectionist, Fish Holder. Welcome back to the show, Fish. Thank you so much for having me back, Mike. It's great to be here. It's really good to have you. How you been, man? How was your holidays? Uh, holidays were nice and chill. I like to keep things pretty calm, pretty nuclear, and this year, unconscious and ill. So oh, That's a bummer. <laughs> apologies for your listeners who might be hearing certain bodily functions throughout your podcast. I mean, if they're not used to it by this point, then <laughs> this probably isn't the show for them. <laughs> <laughs> And well, it's great to have you back, man, and uh, you have un- undertaken a podcasting endeavor of your own, so now we have uh, another podcasting vet on, yet another. Yes, yes, it is going to be coming. Uh, I hope you guys are ready for it. I've got a little mini-series podcast coming up called Two Assholes and a Mic, where it is a poorly-reviewed podcast for poorly-reviewed films. It's a good time. I uh, get together with a bunch of friends, Mike Emma, one of them, and we review some not-so-greatly-loved-but-dearly-beloved films. Yeah, I had a really good time on the episode I was on. I don't think I, I'm allowed to like spoil what the. Uh, what it was. No, I think I think we can. We'll just say um, uh, what's what's a teaser? What's a good tease? Um, glug 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 glug. glug, glug. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited for it to drop. Early February, you said. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, I'm excited for it to appear. And thank you for coming on to our show. Welcome back, and welcome back to all of you listening. We are so glad to have you here, and we hope that you enjoy the show. If you do, you can check out all of our other episodes at our website at cinemus.com. You can also find those episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. And for daily updates on show content, you can follow us on the social media platform of your choice. You just gotta search for Cinemusts. So Fish and I are here today to debate the must-see status of two movies some might say are essential viewing. To do that, we're going to need all of your help, as two people alone cannot decide if a film should be considered an absolute must-see. To help us build that essential cinema list, we need all of you listening to visit this episode's post at cinemus.com and vote tonight's films into one of three categories that are based on your personal recommendation level. Fish, would you please don your best explaining hat and define what those categories are? Uh, Yes, our three categories are cinema. Must, which would be a film that is absolutely essential cinema for anyone to see. Cinetrust, which, although might be a great piece of cinema, might not be something that you'd recommend to everyone. Might be a little more niche, might be a little more particular. And then Cinebust is something that you just can't really include in that must-see essential cinema. Might still have a dear place in your heart, but just not in that category. Yeah, not a movie you recommend to anybody. Man, you are so good at that. Thank you so much. Before we offer our take on which of those categories we believe today's films belong in, we first need to reveal which category our listeners decided last episode's movies deserve. Did It's a Wonderful Life and Meet Me in St. Louis obtain official must-see status? Let's find out. So I am so happy tonight to be going over the poll results from our last episode with that episode's host, the lovely Amanda Emmel. Hi Amanda, welcome back. Hello everyone. It was really nice of you to come all the way out here this late at night. It was such a distance to travel. I know, you're a real trooper. Thank you for your support of the show, and thank you for a wonderful ep- episode last time. I had such a good time talking about one of my all-time favorite movies, It's a Wonderful Life, with one of your all-time favorite movies, It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a little joke to say that um, we felt like there was something about Meet Me in St. Louis that we just didn't quite get, and we were very interested to see how the polls were going to turn out, especially for that one to decide if that movie was going to get voted an absolute must-see. So 
Before we reveal the results, Amanda, how do you think it turned out in the poll? Well, the word on the street, my insider scoop, says that people loved it. People really love it. So both of these movies have been voted cinemasts, movies everybody has to see. Even Meet Me in St. Louis, which was actually kind of inspiring to me because we did end the episode saying that we really wanted the lovers of that movie to come out of the woodwork and tell us what about it speaks to them. And they sure did. So we're going to read their comments on that. But first, we just want to break down the stats. Meet Me in St. Louis was voted a Cinemust with a 43% majority. It had 28% of the votes going to Cinetrust, so a pretty close race. It was almost a movie that was for some people, but not everybody. And then there was one soulless monster who voted it a Cinebust. His name is Mike. Quick editorial. One vote did actually come in after we recorded this. Voting Meet Me in St. Louis as a Cinebust, so I do not stand alone, though any references to Cinebusters being considered soulless monsters are still directed solely at me. I'm very happy, though, officially on the Essential Cinema list. And then, kind of not so surprisingly, It's a Wonderful Life uh, becomes the third movie in the history of our podcast to receive a 100% Cinemus rating. Which is a little qualified if you're actually checking the stats. It it shows that it only has an 85% rating, but um, we did have two people who have never seen It's a Wonderful Life. We don't count those votes in terms of the must-trust bust categorization. So every other vote went to Cinemust. So to those two people who have not seen It's a Wonderful Life, it's officially on the must-see list. You should totally go check it out. I do not think you'll be sorry. I agree with that statement. (laughs) You can listen to us go on for 40 minutes about how much we agree with that statement. So those are the results, but I really am excited to dig into the comments that people left to tell us why they love these movies. And so we should start with Meet Me in St. Louis. So our first comment comes from our friends at the Best Pictures Podcast over on Instagram. They said, Meet Me in St. Louis is one of Judy Garland's greatest performances. I might agree with that. Hmm. I think uh, I, I probably personally like her more as Dorothy in I Wizard agree. of Oz. And I do really, really love her in um, Star is Born, original Star is Born. She's super good in that. She should have won an Oscar. But she's really charming in Meet Me in St. Louis. I agree. But not as good as Tootie, right? Correct. Amanda still stands by that. I probably still stand by that, too. But Esther is a fine character. Thank you, Best Pictures Pod. Next, we have Flickers in Time from Instagram. They say, Family triumphs over everything. I cry buckets every time I see this movie, despite how happy it also makes me. I think you can cry tears of joy, too. Absolutely. So good for you, Flickers in Time. Way to own up to it. Next comment comes from our friend Max Barill over at the Classic Movie Must podcast from Twitter. He responded to our tweet asking what the number one reason everybody should see Meet Me in St. Louis would be. He responded with four reasons. One, Vincent Minnelli's mise-en-scene. Two, the trolley song. Three, Margaret O'Brien as Tootie. Four, context makes Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas all the more powerful. P.S. Whoever voted Meet Me in St. Louis a sin of bust is a soulless monster. Mike, you soulless monster. I know, even Max is selling me out. <laughs> Those are four really good points. He made me realize that we didn't talk about Vincent Minnelli at all in a podcast dedicated to one of his most famous movies. So I profusely apologize to all the cinephiles out there that we didn't talk about Vincent Minnelli. We've got a lot more of his movies in the book that we can cover, um, but I'll, I'll own up to that. Vincent Minnelli's use of color is really something that brings the Americana charm to life, which is an element of the movie we did talk a lot about. So props there. We also apologize to Vincent Minnelli for neglecting to bring up your name in our podcast 
Please don't haunt us, Vincent. Yes. Okay, next we have Ryan L. Terry from Twitter. He says, Masterful handling of the then-American dream. Outstanding diegetic musical numbers. Relatable conflict. Frustrations of youth in a world built for adults. That's a pretty deep reading. We probably didn't consider that um, a lot of the movie is about the plight of youth in terms of a world made for adults. Because I don't feel like the movie shows you the adult standpoint too often. No, they're all, they all keep to themselves quite a bit, I guess. All this to say that Ryan sees much more than we do, which is why he got it as a cinemust, or I'm sure he contributed at least. So thank you very much, Ryan. Your comments are always amazing and, and educational. Last comment on Meet Me in St. Louis comes from an anonymous Cinemust voter on our website poll, which says, Not everyone out there is a musical lover, and I know plenty of folks hate this movie. With that caveat, it has given me so much joy and cathartic tears that I will continue to recommend it to all. Whoever you are, thank you so much for your vote. Um, like I said, this was a two-vote margin between Cinemust and Cinetrust, so it made the difference and has now put it officially onto the list of essential viewing. So thank you so much to everybody who responded to our call to action to tell us why you love Meet Me in St. Louis. Your comments and your votes have netted it officially on the essential viewing list. Let's move over to It's a Wonderful Life. Amanda, what's the first comment on that? Yeah, and this comes from Best Pictures Podcast via Instagram. They say, there's a reason It's a Wonderful Life was Capra's favorite of his films. It's funny, it's heartbreaking, and it's uplifting. Not to mention that it is one of cinema's best villains and one of cinema's best heroes in one film. Kind of crazy to have both of those things in one movie. But, yeah, that's quite an accomplishment. And Best Pictures Podcast also has a great show on It's a Wonderful Life, so if you're still craving more talk on It's a Wonderful Life, go check out their podcast. Next comment on It's a Wonderful Life comes from the Creative How Podcast on Instagram, whose number one reason why the movie is a must-see is, quote, when George mouths F me at the end when the townspeople file into their house. Seriously, it was filmmaking ahead of its time. Timeless, really. End quote. Um, I never noticed this. I've probably seen this movie like 30 times, and um, Twitter has shown me that that is a real thing. <laughs> so thanks, Creative How. You turned me on to a whole new element of Capra's filmmaking. <laughs> Next, we have Reviews Criticas from Instagram. You can't help but want Bailey to succeed. The acting is phenomenal, and it's so inspiring. It is so inspiring. I agree 100% with Reviews Criticas. I think George Bailey is the most empathetic and greatest of movie characters, and I love to watch him succeed. Next up comes from a new friend on Twitter at the handle Biscuit Trousers, which I think is a fantastic Twitter handle. They say, I feel It's a Wonderful Life is the better film for many reasons, one of which is the essentially dark subject matter. It was the first film James Stewart made after serving in World War II. Note that on the original poster, the title is bracketed by quotation marks. It's an interesting idea. Um, one thing I feel bad about that we didn't really cover in the episode is we talked a lot about Meet Me in St. Louis' relationship to the wartime, that it was a nostalgic look during the war, but we didn't really talk about how It's a Wonderful Life is looking at American life after the war. Um, and I think that definitely plays a huge part in its success and its commentary on society. So thanks a ton, Biscuit Trousers, for pointing that out. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. We have Ryan L. Terry up again from Twitter. He says, the relatable characters, relatable conflict, and inspirational message. It's not flawless, but pretty damn close. Ryan, you made my wife swear. <laughs> High five, dude. <laughs> And our last comment, again from our website poll, an anonymous Cinemust voter, 
who said, obviously everyone must see this, if only to disabuse them of the notion that this is a Christmas movie. So much more. Whoever you are, Mike totally agrees with you. I do. Do you agree with him? I agree with him. I do still like watching it at Christmas time. I do too. Or her. It could be a woman. That, that is true. That is very true. They make a fine point. And you know, the the big, is it a Christmas movie? Is it to, like, I don't really care. I don't think it is. But if there's a socially sanctioned day for everybody to watch this movie that I absolutely love, great. Awesome. If it like was a Halloween movie, I'd be totally happy because everybody is going <laughs> out and watching this movie I love. So I think that's fantastic. There you have it, folks. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody, for all your comments and for your votes. We love receiving these and reading them. They help open up different avenues, different ways to see the movies, because we only get a half an hour to talk about them, and sometimes that's not enough, as you can probably tell on the It's a Wonderful Life segment of the show. And Amanda, thank you so much for coming in to read these with me. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I'll send you back on your commute in a minute. But before we leave and put these two movies to rest and get them on the essential cinema list, is there any last words you would like to have on them? No, I just enjoyed watching them and talking about them and hope you guys enjoyed our podcast on them. It's a great show. Thank you so much, babe. And thank you so much, everybody, for your votes. We hope you'll join us on this episode's poll to decide if tonight's two films will get inducted onto that same essential cinema list. And I will not keep you waiting any longer. We will return to the episode proper and I will have Fish explain what tonight's two films are and why he chose them. Tonight's two films, which I chose specifically uh, because I, last time that we recorded together, we did a little more in my expertise, which was Fosse and musicals and all of that, all of that loveliness. That episode is so much fun. Um, I have literally zero experience with silent films. Um, I never took film lit. I really should have. So I've never had an interest in watching these academically. And I had heard you mentioning so often of one of the most underrated physical comedians of the black and white silent film era, Buster Keaton. Mm -hmm. And I was really curious to see some of his work. Um, obviously, I'd seen The Wall Fall, but just like the extracted five-second clip of it from Steamboat Bill Jr., mm -hmm. which I actually didn't realize was from Steamboat Bill Jr. until you recommended it. Um, so I was looking up one of the more higher-rated uh, Buster Keaton films, which was Sherlock Jr., and lots of people said it had some really interesting thoughts on duality and art imitating life and all that other stuff. So I said, let's look at Sherlock Jr. And I asked you to see if you could find what's a good pairing for Sherlock Jr. And you recommended... Steamboat Bill Jr. Yay! I, sh I should say like roundabout. I threw like a lot of really weird stuff at you first and then we decided oh, yeah. like, uh, you know, <laughs> it's another Buster Keaton movie with Jr. in the title so we could just do that. Yeah. I think they actually do pair together pretty interestingly because um, isn't there like a five-year... There's a five-year... Four. Four-year. Yeah. It's tangible. It's yeah, yeah. really tangible in this early in filmmaking, and that was really impressive to me. Yeah, and they also kind of bookend his career because Sherlock Jr., I think, is second or third of his features, and Steamboat Bill Jr. kind of infamously is his last hoorah with creative control before he makes this really bad deal with MGM and uh, basically tanks his career. And he isn't even credited officially in um, Steamboat Bill Jr. He's not not as director, no. But, but everyone says that he was the co-director. It's a Buster Keaton movie, yeah. No, nobody knows the name of Chad F. Reiser, or I think that's his name. Okay, who knows? <laughs> okay, so my last question, I think you kind of touched on this, but when we were deciding what to do, you kind of asked what, what are some genres we haven't really touched on yet, and silent movies was one of them, and you said, let's do that. 
Why these two instead of like a, a more well-known like Charlie Chaplin movie or something like Metropolis? Why Buster Keaton? Oh, I feel like you've been telling me so much that he's kind of this unsung great. And the more I look into silent film, I Buster Keaton in particular actually has been getting this interesting critical resurgence where a lot of um, a lot of modern readings into his stuff seems to find that it has a lot more artistic merit than people initially garnered him. I think people gave Charlie Chaplin a lot of credit, amply do, um, yeah. because he's a great physical comedian, but he also uh, did a lot of very interesting political work. He, like, the work is steeped in culture. You're talking about Keaton, Keaton, not Chaplin? uh, I'm talking about Chaplin. Okay. But Buster Keaton was kind of written off a little bit, and he was just like, oh, no, he's just a a vaudevillian. He's just a comedian. But I think his work, especially um, Sherlock Jr., actually points to a lot of really interesting... I think he's a lot more subtle than people gave him credit for initially, nowadays. Absolutely, yeah. He's definitely been rediscovered, but he is kind of a darling of... Like you mentioned, like film lit one students. Oh, I was, I was one of them. I was so obnoxious. Like first year of college, like I'd be walking up and getting into people's faces. Like, man, you, you like silent movies. You've seen some Chaplin. Have you heard of Keaton, dude? I've calmed down, but I do. I love them both. I'm so glad we have them both. But they're a lot deeper than just the vaudevillian act, like you said. And I would say that I think more people are familiar with Keaton's stunts than they are with they're definitely more familiar with his stunts than they are with his name. I think Chaplin's sure. most known for his I I I'd, I'd separate things into stunts and gags a little bit. Chaplin's known for his little comedic gags, the um the dinner roll tap dance. Um but I think everyone has seen the wall fall. I think everyone's seen a clip of Evolve that. Evolve into Universal Studios, yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay. Let's not dilly-dally then. Let's dive into these two films specifically. Um So for anyone who's new to the show, we are going to take a couple of minutes to be totally spoiler-free and do just a general impression section. We're going to basically try to sell you on these movies in case you haven't seen them or never heard of them, so we're going to give a quick little plot summary. Fish and I are going to vote each film into one of the three categories he defined, Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust, and we are going to give three reasons apiece for why we voted the way we did. And from there, we'll tackle each movie one at a time in spoilers. We will warn you, give you a chance to bug out and go watch the movies, which, it should be said, are in the public domain. You can watch fantastic prints of these movies on YouTube right now. Like, this is, these are the first two movies we've covered where I'm going to be able to just tweet a link to the movie, and it's completely legal, and it's fantastic. Oh, yeah, and actually, um, Sherlock Jr. has a great backing track. Kino did a really great job on both soundtracks, I think, actually. It's, it's a great time. So... Um, let's start there then with general impressions. Sherlock Jr., as you mentioned, is in 1924, very early in Keaton's features career. Fish, would you mind telling us what that movie is about? In Sherlock Jr., a humble movie projectionist, played by Buster Keaton, has dreams of being a detective, all while barely scraping enough dollars off the floor of the auditorium to buy his fiancée, Catherine McGuire, a box of candy. In a turn of events, his fiancée is robbed by the local chic, played by Ward Crane, and the projectionist is framed for this crime and banished from the household. The projectionist then attempts to use his amateur detective skills to capture the culprit, only to end up all wet. And failing to prove much of anything, the projectionist returns to his theater, where he falls asleep and dreams that he is the great, renowned detective, Sherlock Jr. Mike, what did you think about this? I love Sherlock Jr. Um, to, to show all my cards, you, you really have me pegged. I saw this movie first in high school film class, which is where I was introduced to Buster Keaton, and this is the movie of his that we watched. I fell in love with it instantly, so I for sure am voting this a cinema must, a movie I would recommend to absolutely everybody. 
and my three reasons all kind of like mesh together. The, the first reason I have is that I think this is really, really tight filmmaking. And kind of what I mean by that is that I feel it all boils down to complete narrative control that Keaton has in this movie. The story is always in focus. He has this unbelievable command of the surreal space that he's working in once we enter the world of a movie within a movie. I think no gag is for its own sake, which is something that is both charming about a lot of silent movies, but can be detrimental that sometimes gags just play as like a funny vaudevillian act that doesn't have much to do with anything, but that's not what happens in Sherlock Jr. Every gag is interweaved with character and story. But my second reason everyone should see it is because of that nonstop barrage of delightful magic tricks. When we enter the the film within the film, all of a sudden the rules kind of um, become a lot more loose and we get a lot of fantastic stunts. We get a lot of just vaudevillian acts and they're a delight to watch. And my third reason this is a must-see is that I think that the movie very blatantly speaks to the importance of cinema, why it's important. And I think that that's something that's super important um, when we study silent movies because it's a relatively new art form. And I think that we have a lot to learn from masters of silent film because they're the ones that got movies to where they are today. Because today, movies are just everywhere and we accept it as like the predominant art form. But that's not what it was back then. These are the guys that made it so because they saw something of value in it. And I think that Sherlock Jr. is a movie that blatantly talks about the value that movies have as an art form. So just just three of the many reasons I could give Fish. How about you? How would you vote for Sherlock Jr.? Uh, an interesting thing about this is because uh, full disclosure, the first time that I watched Sherlock Jr., which was just sitting in front of my computer, I did not care for it. Really? I did not care for it. I didn't think it was terrible, but I was thought like, eh. But I gave it a second wa- watch through, and I absolutely have to put it as cinemust. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, it... Dude, what a reversal. It completely flipped on me. Partially because I think it's a perfect runtime for an introduction into silent film, too. Yeah. It's a beautiful length. I think it's like, what, 40 minutes? 44 minutes. Yeah. Fantastic. That is is two episodes of a sitcom. Um, It does a really amazing exploration of the real world versus cinema in multiple lenses, not just, like, the cinema within the cinema, but real world, real world within the film that you're watching it's and yet all of this is done with a spare handful of title cards and acted and pantomimed directly in front of you with no dialogue it's amazing how well it pulls you through everything without being confusing considering that it has some really avant-garde sections that honestly a lot of modern filmmakers would struggle to keep the audience's attention and understanding through yeah and keaton does it flawlessly and like I said, despite having these tricky environments to convey inside the film, you know what's going on um, with a very few amount of title cards, which is amazing to me because I was worried that it was going to be the action would stop constantly for those silent cards. And we'd see like, help or ha ha or pow. <laughs> um, no, that's that's not the case. Um, and I actually it's a tiny point at the end, but I thought it was so lovely in terms of storytelling there's a beautiful moment of art imitating life and life imitating art, very specifically at the end of the film. That is just such a beautiful, tight cycle that the whole film is wrapped in that I thought was just magical. It makes it into this little present. Yeah, and it's a perfect ending, too. Oh, yeah, and it's sweet. It's a good time. Yeah, a lot of our points are actually the same because I'm definitely going to talk about that ending point, um, especially in the importance of cinema point that I have. So... 
I'm really glad that you liked it and that you gave it a second shot. So maybe that's also an admonition to people who haven't seen it, who are going to watch it for the first time after listening to this podcast. If you don't dig it, maybe it's worth uh, watching again after a day or two. Oh, yeah. And this is and I think with silent film, especially this is a film that it helps when you try to watch it as close as possible to the arena in which it was originally watched watching it on your phone in bed sideways is not a great way to watch a silent film you know that's true because they're both so short i did have the chance to watch them twice and i had a much better time watching them on my big tv than my laptop Mm -hmm. and i believe that there are still places even here in utah where they do um live bands playing to silent films and so great i am now going to be the first in line to get a ticket to one of those now i don't even care what movie it is that sounds like it'd be fantastic so Where's that at? Who does that? I feel like they do it at the tower. Does the tower do it? They would They would be the ones yeah. to do it. Okay. Let's move on over to Steamboat Bill Jr., which comes four years later in 1928. To anyone who hasn't seen that movie, I've got the plot summary. The foppish son of a stern riverboat captain returns home from college to join the ship's crew and help his father compete with a cocky tycoon. But his outsider status interferes with his assimilation into the naval line of work and his genealogical standing complicates his courtship of the tycoon's daughter. First time viewing for you on this one, Fish? Yes, although I had, again, seen like little clips of the gags towards the end of it. I've never seen the film as a whole. Okay, what did you think? How would you vote for it? Um, I am going to put this one actually as a Cinetrust. Okay. Um, and I, I think it, it, was, it was actually it was a little hurt by the fact that it was paired with Sherlock Jr., because Sherlock Jr. ended up being such a gem after my second viewing. Um, with Steamboat Bill Jr., though, not a bad film in any way. In fact, no. still an excellent film. I'd still put it as, I think it's more of a niche silent film. I think that the film at times functions more as an acrobatic skeleton for gags and stunts than it does function well as a story. It does have one of the most spectacular disaster ending sequences in film. Like, period. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. I was actually at the edge of my seat watching this silent movie um stunt charade but it was amazing and also terrifying to think that like oh god this is this is way before the screen actors guild isn't it this yeah. is no one <laughs> no one is safe i think there's actually a great story about how buster keaton uh, during that wall fall he was totally prepared for that to crush him yeah he was very depressed and was about to have his studio shut down so he just said if it kills me it kills me yeah oh gosh <laughs> Um, what actually that goes into my third point though, um, that is probably one of the most iconic gags in silent movie history and it is twice as impressive when you watch it in the context of the entire film and the sequence, the whole disaster sequence that's shot with there at the end of it. I think that's amazing, but I kind of feel like those are the, the film exists as this, like there's a story and then an opportunity for a bunch of gags to thrill the audience. I actually totally agree with you on that. As delightful as the the cyclone sequence is, it, it is just kind of like a bunch of vaudeville acts all strung together to show amazing stunts, and then the story kind of uh, a little too neatly wraps up. Mm-hmm. So with Cine Trust, it's not a movie for everybody, but still, it's niche. So what is the group of people you absolutely would recommend uh, Steamboat Bill Jr. to? Um, aside from film lit students, um, I think anyone who, uh, who actually... And I know I know a lot of people who are actually like film stunt buffs. I think this is oh, yeah. yeah, I think this is a great film for that. I think that's that's honestly that's that's a lot of it. I th- I think that the best parts of the film are really for the stunts. I think that the story in it is quaint and appropriate for a silent movie film, but I don't think it examines 
as beautifully um, some of the things that Sherlock Jr. does. We're going to have a lot of fun and spoilers, though, because while I do agree with you on that, uh, we're kind of at opposite ends because I think all the merits of this movie are in the first two thirds with like the, the quote unquote quaint story. And then the cyclone sequence, while fun and enjoyable to me is where the movie kind of loses all the heart that could have got it into cinema's territory for me, mm. which is my way of saying that I also vote this a cine trust mm-hmm. um, for, for that reason. And also my number one reason, which is why I moved it from must to trust. I was really close, but I don't feel that this movie quite succeeds as a comedy, especially not in the way that other movies like his do, like Sherlock Jr. or The General. Um, I think if you look at this more as a social melodrama, like a, a message movie, there's actually a lot to get out of it. But the the comedy of it just does not fire as well as I feel a lot of his other movies do. Um, so that's kind of what bumped it down for me. But the two reasons I'd ha- I would have for why this movie is absolutely still worth seeing, especially to silent film buffs, um, stunt buffs is a great one, like you said. One of them is, I think this is a great story about how hard it can be to fit in or find your place in the world. Keaton and Chaplin kind of play out that same idea that they are always outsiders trying to just attain some kind of status, and it's usually just through wooing a girl and finding their place in the world. Um, and I like the way that Keaton handles that because he's he's much more interested in trying to blend in than Chaplin is. Chaplin kind of doesn't care if he fits in with the rest of the world. The tramp is a force unto himself, but Keaton as the great emotionalist stone face. He really just wants to go with the flow, but he has a hard time keeping it bottled up. So I think that this movie is actually a great showcase of that. And my third reason is I think that this, that this is an entertaining and pretty insightful critique of masculinity. Again, for the first, like two-thirds when we're setting up all the conflicts. Um, I think it's a movie about a boy who's trying to become a man, and he confronts a lot of ironical situations, and it's it's just a lot more complicated, I think, than a first viewing would have. Just like, oh, it's just this cute little guy who wants to win a girl and be a steamboat captain. Um, but to me, yeah, the the cyclone sequence, as fun as it is to watch, like it's it's almost a predecessor to like big blockbusters of the day where it's just a third act destruction explosions everywhere like if you're into that like you absolutely should see this movie because like you teased at there's no there's no safety guidelines here it's real houses that are just being blown apart and people are being thrown up into the air it's really something to watch so i really wanted to give this sin a must but but the reason i tacked it down actually was that i convinced amanda to watch sherlock jr because i love that movie enough to get her to watch it but i did not feel confident enough in steamboat bill to say, we have to watch this. You definitely will like it and probably won't fall asleep. Um, I didn't feel strong enough in it. So it's Cinetrust for me, but I think it's very much worth seeing still. I like the the the, the, the wife rating stick for Cinema Cinetrust. That's really useful. It has saved me so many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else about either of these movies you feel it's necessary to convey to anyone who maybe hasn't seen them before we move into spoilers? Yes, if you've never seen a silent film, they are not what you think. How so? Silent films are rhythmically, good silent films are so rhythmically tight that you barely have a chance to catch your breath, and it takes active watching. And I think that that, again, that's valuable. I mentioned that's valuable not only to see how pioneers revolutionize film into what we have today, but also... That's a useful skill to have to be able to read the visual and um, draw inferences like that's useful in terms of building your critical thinking skills. So they do still have a lot to offer us. And 
it doesn't hurt to watch the ones made by the absolute masters like Buster Keaton, like Charlie Chaplin, like Eric von Stroheim. So these would be great ones to start out with, especially as you mentioned, being so short, being fairly accessible, being so fun. So I'm glad that, you know, you picked these as the very first silent films we've discussed on the show. I'm excited, man. Anything else? I think we're good. Let's dive in. All right, let's move into spoilers for Sherlock Jr. So Fish, this this whole thing about how you didn't like Sherlock Jr. the first time and then you came back to revisit it and all of a sudden it's an absolute must-see movie. I'm so interested in this, um, especially because your three reasons why this is a must-see are not what I would expect. You, none of your three reasons revolve around all of the, the gimmicky stunts and the gags and just the delightful comedy. Like all of your stuff is like really hard-hitting, like real-world versus cinema, this art-imitating life cycle. So why do those things speak to you so much more than, you know, the gags and things that I think this movie is more renowned for? Well, um, one of the things I think it did very well is, um, unlike Chicago, it's kept to Bob Fosse's original choreography. (laughs) (laughs) You stole the joke I was saving for later, damn you! (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I've killed you, it's okay. So, going back to why it sucked the first time I watched it is I watched it half on my computer and half in bed on my phone and was not paying attention to it because I think nowadays we're so used to watching movies kind of like half-assed. Yeah. You don't really need to pay attention. Silent film, you can't have it on in the background. You don't know what's going on. And so, my first watching was not nearly as intent my first viewing of it was not nearly as critical as it should have been, um, was not nearly as active as it should have been. And then I decided, no, I need to do this film justice. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to put it up on the big screen. I'm going to get a nice bowl of popcorn so I don't have to get up. And I'm going to watch this and actually see what is being presented to me. And uh, what I appreciated so much for from the beginning, and this is someone who has no context of silent film at all, Um, But I have a little bit of context with acting and doing stage drama and Shakespeare and things like that is the rhythm and the musicality of the pantomiming that's being done in Buster Keaton's film is really just tight. You understand everything that's going on. I think the the beginning of the film opens up with, if I'm remembering this correctly, Buster Keaton kind of sitting alone in an otherwise empty auditorium Mm -hmm. next to a pile of trash. Yep reading a how to be a detective novel and it's so it's more of a pamphlet a pam- okay. pamphlet <laughs> pam- novel there's seven steps there's seven and steps. detectives seven steps in 30 pages that are like squished <laughs> together you only see the three steps and it is so charming yeah and immediately understandable and what i love too is um and you talked about this as well none of the gags kind of just are there for the gags sake that little pile of 
trash next to him rolls into this beautiful gag sequence later on that's also integral to the story where he's finding bills in the trash and then turns out oh that's this person's bill that they left there and you have to give that money back and it's endearing to him because he's an honest guy he's not gonna pretend he's not there although he does kind of cheekily try to dance around it and that pantomime sequence where he's like what 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 does your dollar bill look like? <laughs> Which is never said or even given as a title card, or maybe it says like it just says describe it. Describe it's, it. It's two words, but the joke is fantastic. It's it's so beautiful, and there's a be- there's a hilarious payoff at the end of it where the guy like pulls up and finds this huge wad of cash. Yeah. <laughs> in it, and all of that flows seamlessly from your introduction shot to sh- um, the projectionist. He isn't Sherlock Junior at this point. That just impressed me so much that all of this was done panto. All of this was done with minimal dialogue. And that's that's Keaton because he was huge on trying to tell a story almost completely visually. He loved to brag about how fewer title cards his movies had compared to others because he really believed that you had to just get everything in the shot. And he believed that with his storytelling. He believed that in his stunts. He said, if we can't do it in one take, then we're not going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can tell, oh, I wish I could remember the reviewer who I was watching who said said this, but Keaton and every character in his film follows a rule that if it's not in frame, it doesn't exist. Yes. Which speaks a lot to the movie's ideas about the importance of cinema because ostensibly, you know, the the first half of the movie is the real life. We're setting up the... His plight is a poor projectionist trying to get the girl he's framed for stealing the pocket watch and... Only in escaping to the movies can he, you know, live out the life he wants to have. But there comes a point after the big editing joke montage where he's getting thrown around all over different landscapes that Sherlock Jr. just becomes the same kind of movie as the the first half of the movie. There's just a, a heightened sense of reality. So it is still playing, like you said, with that what is real life and what is illusion through just film t- or filmmaking because what's happening in the real world is still only confined to what is on screen. Mm-hmm. It's what you can prove. It's, it's what you can show that is real. And if you can show it, is it, is it any less real? That's some inception level stuff, man. It, 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 it seriously wowed me the second time when you actually pay attention to it. There's so many amazing gags um, in this. And so interesting that you, you find it, you found enjoyment in it in a more, intent viewing experience because that's kind of what the movie does as well that in order to get fulfillment out of his life the projectionist has to literally interact with a film like one-on-one he has to place himself within it and give it his full attention oh yeah and he's a the projectionist is also is a very relatable almost tragic character um buster keaton i was not expecting him to play this um, I mean, I've only seen about two and a half films of his now. I'm starting to kind of watch some more. But he's he seems to be known to play this almost the the, the male ingenue. Um, he's he's uh, timid, effete. He's very he's just kind of there. Stone the great stone face. Yeah, um, he just does his thing, and it is it is kind of tragic that he uh, in the beginning of the film he gets framed for the um, for the watch heist, and. All of his his delusions of grandeur of being like, I'm a detective, um, totally flies right in his face when the police officer searches him and finds the slip for the pawned watch. And everything's kind of, oh, lonesome Buster Keaton. And he has to go back to his projection and then lives out his fantasy of what he could be 
Um, and yet how, I, I wonder if that's a little bit of a parallel to Keaton himself um, of being like this. Because Keaton is a troubled person. As, as most legends are, yes. Yeah. I mean, he fell into a really bad um, alcoholic uh, depression after uh, the MGM. After uh, Steamboat Bill, yeah. Yeah, it was really bad. But I wonder if this is kind of like a, a, a look into him as a person a little bit too, not to get too ridiculously autobiographical with the read, but where in real life he's kind of, he has to live in the work that he creates. And in that work, he can be amazing. But we also know like how many takes it, how many shots it takes to get a Buster Keaton level perfection, the trick shots of pool that he learned. Um, <laughs> but we see only the expertise that is presented in the Sherlock Jr. filmscape. Right. And how interesting, though, that it's also presented as a film within a film, because we're introduced to the projectionist who could never do any of these things. But then when we watch the film within the film, we see Sherlock Jr., Buster Keaton, the vaudeville performer, being this fantastic, able to do any stunt um, type of person. Yeah, it is kind of like a split between his iconic film persona and maybe the the more down-to-earth, relatable elements of the characters he plays. Because like Charlie Chaplin, they kind of just plays the same character in every movie. But you just love him so much, like you said, because he's always just down on his luck, looking for a place to fit in. He just wants to get the girl. I think that's a big reason why this movie, especially, is regarded as like one of his best masterpieces and why I think people can latch onto it a lot easier than other things that he made, because... The journey the projectionist takes in this movie is pretty relatable to most filmgoers. It's not only the artist having to take consolation in his art, but the viewer can do the same thing, which is what the movie's about. Like you said, that he has multiple attempts. You know, he has a ring on the girl. You know, he, he by all intents and purposes, has nothing to worry about, but he is still very insecure and jealous. Mm-hmm. Um, he slips on the banana peel. He's, you know, he gets framed for the crime and he's no good as a detective. Like as you mentioned in the plot summary, he's all wet, which is a nice little pun on the the water tower dumping on him, which is not the most impressive stunt to look at, but impressive when you know the backstory that dude broke his freaking neck. Yeah. And didn't realize it until the doctor examined later and found the callus on his vertebra. Yeah. And uh, it's just impressive because in that shot, he stands up, Two guys on a, a push cart, right? Yeah. Two guys on a push cart come, they get doused, and then they chase him off. And it's like the dude had a broken neck and he ran across the field. Yeah. No, these stunts People are... were hard in those days. I actually, like, I, I think I audibly gasped when I saw the water shoot out and slam him into the train track. Because I'm just like, did they hide any padding there? Nope. Nope. His, his neck took the, the brunt of it. It's uh, all good. He's, Yeah. No wonder dude had issues. Yeah. So Buster Keaton, like you're saying, the living legend, it's, you know, he can take that. But the projectionist is just completely defeated, as we often feel. Like we talked about uh, last show with George Bailey, you know, life is about kind of feeling overpowered. And part of the magic of the movies is getting some of that power back, which the projectionist does by literally becoming the star of his own movie, by being the super detective he wants to be. He's no longer the guy that's going to slip on the banana peel. He's the guy who's going to be wise to all of the booby traps. He's going to know that the the 13 ball is a bomb, and he's going to have a lot of fun messing with the guys in real life who torment him. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of wish fulfillment there, and I think that that speaks to the importance of cinema as a place of escapism, as a place where you can imprint 
on a hero who is everything you want to be. Yeah, and be- before even getting into the Sherlock Jr. Um, film section proper, I thought the the kind of semi-avant-garde, or I guess it's, it's that section of cutting before he's kind of sucked into the film proper, where he's walking around and the scene transitions and cuts, I was just impressed by that period. Nowadays, I'd be impressed if something was shot that smoothly um, with all of those cuts. And the way that they did it was just like, I, w- I was wowed. It's unbelievable. It is. It, it's, it's truly some really amazing special effects that were done, um, not just for the time. And again, all of this is done panto. All of this is done without dialogue. And you understand what's going on. The fact that I think you transition from like, here's the real world where you have the projectionist to here's the projectionist daydreaming to here's the projectionist blurring the line between film and reality to now you are watching a film within a film where characters are being duplicated and played and you have this little cloud atlas moment um (laughs) but all of it's clear and understandable you know where you are throughout all of those really intricate changes of scene that are kind of blurry in the middle and i think that section is just so impressive from like I said, the the f- tight filmmaking standpoint, because on the surface, that editing sequence is like a nice little joke that doesn't appear to have a lot to do with what's going on. Oh, but, it definitely feels the most like, here's a gag. Yeah, but, you know, when you look at it, this was such a radical concept for 1924, like this surrealist idea that the projectionist can be daydreaming, that he can literally walk into the screen and be a part of the movie world. This gag kind of helps adjust audiences to this idea, so it gives them a chance to laugh, but it's also introducing them to the idea that the rules are changing, that time and space can shift on a dime, and I think that that flows effortlessly into the second half, where we are in the Sherlock Jr. movie within a movie, and everything is so much more heightened that the gags all of a sudden become a lot more... I guess we'd call them silent movie-esque. You know, we have the, the, the safe door that is actually just the front door to the detective's office. We have um, driving the car down the river. We have him hopping off a two-story building into the backseat of a car. Like, none of that stuff happens in the first half of the film. I think the most intense thing we get is the water spout. Yeah. And that fits our reality. And Keaton, through this editing joke, is adjusting us to a place where those same rules no longer apply. Yeah, it justifies the silent movie gags in a way that I don't think um, other movies do nearly as well. And I mean, some movies don't have to, but it works so well for this one if this has to be a fantasy scape again, where he can be the cool guy who will catch the criminals. And I like, in addition to him being like the cool guy he could never be, the Sheik is also like so much more of a scumbag that he's not just like this outmatched doofus who has to pawn a watch to buy presents he's actually like the head of a mastermind thieving ring who keeps Mm -hmm. detectives in cages like it's really super villain-esque and it's a ton of fun oh yeah it's like total twiddly mustache yeah so like keaton can be the really good guy and the sheet can be the super bad guy so maybe we should just gush for a second about that second half that is just loaded with so many delightful jokes and stunts which I feel is, I think that's a big reason why this movie stuck in my memory. Um, all this stuff about illusion versus reality is really there and is probably what makes it a true masterpiece. But the first time I saw this, I know that everything that stuck in my memory was changing into a dress by jumping through a window and diving through Gillette into the wall and all of these 
kind of magic tricks that Keaton just took from his history on the stage and put them into a movie. And because it's in this heightened reality, it works. It doesn't feel like gimmicky. He can weave them into this plot thread of him trying to escape the thieves and save the girl. And and here, I'm going to go on a little tangent with this. What impressed me too, um, so I think I'm a huge fan of Penn and Teller, uh, the modern yeah. day musicians, if you know them. And Penn and Teller are kind of famous for um, doing their clear balls and cups routine. Um, and they actually have another, the clear sliced man routine, where they'll do magic tricks to show exactly what the magic is. They show what the illusion is, and it doesn't remove any of the grandeur, which is a thing about magic um, in particular, is if magic isn't done perfectly, it's a failure. It isn't like um, music where you can miss a note or two, but you can, you can appreciate the intent. Either it all works or it doesn't work. Unless you are at this level of brilliance where you can make the, the illusion and the act of performing it and showing what it really is that entertaining. And I think in both of these films, actually, um, Buster Keaton shows these vaudeville magic tricks that are amazing in their own right, and then quickly shows exactly how they're done. Um, or mostly kind of, um, the diving through, uh, the window and putting on the, the dress. I, that's, that one's just like, that's skill. That's, yeah. that's amazing skill. The diving through the chest, um, of Gillette. That is also an amazing one. They don't show the real specifics of how that works, but they show that there's a sliding wall behind it. Yeah. They give you a hint. Yeah. Which I think is so great. Um, not to jump to the other film, but in Steamboat Bill Jr. He also has the, um. He has the curtain yeah, over the, the curtain door. drop. And then you see the mirror from the other angle. That was something that I just really appreciated to see that side of vaudeville kind of brought to film and then kind of showcased to being like, so the illusion's fun, but the real skill is in how it's performed. Mm-hmm. And wow, is it performed and amazingly. Like you, like you said, this dude is an immaculate stage master. He has such a cool history too, because he grew up on vaudeville. He, you know, grew up, just learning how to take a fall, how to be funny. He knew what made people laugh. But he learned this stuff from, like, Houdini, which, how awesome is that to have all these tricks taught to you by Houdini immortalized on film? That's one element of it, but I also appreciate, I think you'd even, you'd even teased at this, that if he doesn't show, like, what the trick is, a lot of the stunts, there is no trick. It's just... Skill. How did, how did he do that? He just really did it. How did he drive a motorcycle, like, just by sitting on the handlebars? He learned how to drive a motorcycle by sitting on the handlebars, and then he just drove through a traffic intersection oh one my day, God. and they filmed it. And I think about the coordination that would have to happen behind the scenes. I mean, like, part of me wonders, and it's, an, it's amazing to how um, natural he makes some of those um, near misses um, in his films seem, but it must be so much chaos and calling and cue marking. Yeah. And yet it just feels like, oh my God, he just barely missed that person. Oh, he's in a river now. Oh, he's going to hit that person. <laughs> just like, ah, it's an adrenaline rush. Yeah, no, it's, it's an incredibly exciting movie. And this is something that couldn't really last. Like, I, I don't often like to lambast modern movies for, oh, they use too much CGI and like there's no stakes because a lot of stuff that they do in the silent era is downright irresponsible these days. And, you know, we can't actually build a town just to destroy it. That's kind of a level of, you know, Roman emperor excess that I don't think works in modern day. But to see it done here is still really awe-inspiring that there isn't a ton of 
illusion. There's not even like rear projection or model work. It's just actually happening in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's so impressive. And again, a reason that these movies are worth checking out, even though this movie's going to be a hundred years old in six years. Wow. Yeah. Can you believe that? Wow. It really is. Oh, that's a great point. So I think that those gags are just amazingly fun. Like you could watch that entire second half almost as its own movie and still just appreciate it because it is so funny. It's so built on the character. Like the the pool sequence kind of, again, seems like a gag that's kind of just for its own sake to show off these trick shots. But I like that it is speaking to the first half of the film that the projectionist could never do this. The projectionist would slip on a banana peel that he put down. But Sherlock Jr. can totally f*** with these guys and make them think he's about to hit the bomb ball, but he can keep narrowly missing it. And it reminded me of a friend of ours whom we often play pool with, who is infuriating in this regard. Yes, no, absolutely. I think you and I also agree that the pool gags are probably the most um, vaudeville, I mean, not vaudeville, but the most, the most silent movie gag. It's because it's prolonged. If it was one or two shots, I think it would flow better because the stuff in the chase is, is all kind of like 10 second one-off stuff and it works because it's all just strung along with he's trying to escape the thieves. And you have a sense of progression. Like yeah. you're moving forward. You're going through space. Whereas the pool sequence just kind of like and he's re-racking again. You kind and of have he's this. re-racking again. Yeah, you have this thought that like isn't he supposed to be here solving a mystery? Why is he playing pool? And, it's been Mr. Big Dick on the pool table. Yeah, and, and it took me a second viewing this time to realize like it's there because he knows it's a trick. He's playing with the guys whom he know stole the pearls. Mm-hmm. Which I think is one of those things that probably much, it would have been much more impactful to the audience at the time than it is to us nowadays. Sure. But that again speaks to what you said that, you know, you really have to be paying attention in silent movies that we think everything is so flippant and that one shot is meant merely to convey like, oh, boy likes girl. But there's often a lot more going on because they're telling the whole story through one image. So you really have to pay attention to facial cues and the way that the picture or the way that the frame is set up because, you know, a, a mirror can play a huge role in a shot and telling the story of a single shot. Whereas, you know, on first glance, it might just be like, oh, there was a mirror there. Oh, yeah. And to jump back into Boy Likes Girl, just to uh, one of the smaller, not stunts, but gags that I just still find delightful is when he puts the ring on his fiance <laughs> and well first the box of chocolates and he turns it over to reveal like four dollars i spent four bucks yeah. oh my gosh it's adorable and then the, the the magnifying glass and she's sweet but she's like oh the the other thing i love from that i i love any movie that does this the holding hands game where you put your hand in the middle you're not going to touch hands but <laughs> you know you're showing that it's there you don't want to make the first move uh, this movie does that so well. It's so adorable. And um, I have played that game many times. <laughs> it, it worked out for me in the end. But I thought that was great when she just firmly decides, like, I want this and slams her hand in the Oh, middle. yeah. The, the face of, like, kind of abject terror that they both have in that moment is yeah. also great. Because you, you, you get the melodrama and you're with the characters in that moment and that heightened emotional state and musical theater level theatricality of just being like, <gasps> yeah, we're in betrothed. <laughs> <laughs> and then in comes the chic. You know, an- another thing I like, and this is kind of just a one-off, but um, she gets to solve the mystery. Yeah. Which is solved in a single shot, which does not bode well for our guy who wants to be a detective. No. But, um, you know, 
I, I like that, that she's the one who's able to come to him and say, I know you didn't do this. We proved it. And um, I'm still I'm still into this marriage thing if you are. But how great at the end of it that there's this kind of like tie in where he's a projectionist. That's that's his humble calling. And at the beginning of the movie, there's that little X. There's just that title card that says like he who tries to like be great at two acts ends up being mediocre at both or something. Yeah. yeah don't expect to do two things at once and, and excel do the, at both or something. Yeah. Excel like at both. He's do a project- justice to both. Yes. Excuse me. Yes, do justice to both. He's he's a humble projectionist, and he's a humble projectionist when she comes back and says, we've forgiven you, we know that this was a huge mistake. And then he uses the film to guide him on how to kind of like, what do I do now? Oh, I put the ring back on her. What do I do now? I look at the film. Oh, oh, I kiss her? <laughs> it's It's this really beautiful... So he has this dream where art, his fantasy imitates life, what he was dealing with. And that's the Sherlock Jr. sequence. And then when he comes to, now he's imitating this film that he's seeing and life is imitating art. Exactly. And I love that. But it only carries him so far because the last joke of the movie is fantastic that... I think it's five different shots that get them from like putting ring on to finger to kissing. Mm-hmm. And then our next one is just the movie couple is at home and the wife has two babies and Keaton kind of just gives it this wide eyed look oh like, uh, yes. how do I do that? It's like, ah, <laughs> uh, that's not explained. <laughs> and I like, I like that because I think that also speaks to how this movie talks about the importance of cinema that we not only come to movies for escapism, but to kind of learn something, to glean some life lessons and morals out of things. But Sherlock Jr. wisely acknowledges that it can only take you so far and there's elements of life that just need to be lived yeah. in that final joke, which again, could just rest. as like, oh, what a funny gag. But in, if you think about it, it's actually kind of this profound statement on cinema. Yeah, it's like, here's all the things that we could, that we could learn and that we did learn, but... Real life is where things are messier and where real things have to happen. Yeah. And as you pointed out, the, the fantasy is not what gets him what he wants. Like, he, he's able to live his fantasy to be the cool detective, to save the girl. But she comes to him saying, I love you for who you are. You're just a humble projectionist, and I want your tiny little ring. I want you. I'm okay with this. You don't need to be the, greatest, the world's greatest detective. And you can tell, like, at the beginning of the film that, like, the, the, um, Buster Keaton, the projectionist character isn't seen as this, this poor, unwanted creature by the father. It's only when they suspect him of stealing the watch that he's banished from the home. And it's done through tears. Like, yeah. it's like, they're like, how could you have done this? We would never have thought that this would have been a thing. He is this honest, um, simple, humble man throughout the entire thing. Yeah, it's like a lot of great silent movies. It's a movie about like climbing that social ladder. And I like that um, it ends in a place where he doesn't have to, that he can just be himself. Like you said, that's what people valued in the first place. So it truly is a comedy in that regards that we kind of end up where we started. But, you know, we learned why that's okay along the way. Yeah, beautiful film. Such a great watching experience. And yet still in spite of all of these really nuanced points that you can pull from it, it's still fun to just watch this gags and watch everything play out. It's just really tight. Yeah. Fantastic and, movie. And again, like 45 minutes, you're in, you're out. I don't think there's a wasted moment. 
along with just the narrative control that Keaton has over it, like his editing is unreal. He doesn't waste a single shot. It's it's almost like a perfect little movie, I think. Mm-hmm. So we're about coming up on time. Is there anything else you would like to say in favor of Sherlock Jr.? I think my last notes are I, as someone who is not versed in silent films, highly recommend Sherlock Jr. as a first foray into silent films. Um, it's a blast. Watch it with some popcorn on a big screen. And you've kind of teased this. Is this like your official first silent movie? or This is my official. Sherlock Jr. was my first silent movie that I watched all the way through. With um, intent. With intent. I've, I've seen a portion of a silent movie in class, like, as, like, just, like, represented. I, I think it was, like, back in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've Ob- never... Obligatory silent movie. Yeah, and it was... Cultural appreciation. And, yeah, and it was, like, for, like, the 20 minutes that we had the time for, so it wasn't even completed. This was my first full silent movie that I've watched all the way through. And it was a blast when I gave it the justice that it deserved. Um, not great just watching it on a computer. Not great just watching it on a phone. But that's, I mean, what, what movie is that? It's most right? movies, yeah. You really get them on as big a screen as you can. But yeah, you, I hadn't thought about that. But I think I'm with you. I think this would be a fantastic first silent movie. If that was something you were looking to dive into, Sherlock Jr. would be a great place to start. So there you have it, our cases for why we feel Sherlock Jr. is an absolute must-see movie. Of course, we will be looking forward to your votes on what you think at this episode's post at cinemas.com. But let's move over. We've still got some more Keaton to talk about with what we feel is a less successful but still important endeavor with Steamboat Bill Jr. Woo! Steamboatville Jr. is a movie that you and I enjoy a lot of, but don't feel we could recommend to everybody. And what I found interesting is that we we dance around the same idea that it kind of seems disjointed and that the whole that all the parts don't add up to a complete whole, but we have different readings of like which parts work and which don't. Um, and I think we should actually start with the end of the movie, which I th- is a little weird because you would feel like we should talk about the end at the end. But I think we both agree that the final act of this movie feels so disjointed from the first that it doesn't really matter too much what came before it. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's, it's definitely it seems like a movie and a vaudeville act. Yeah, blatantly so, because as you talked about in Sherlock Jr. section, we have a lot of those vaudevillian tricks like the trap door the ventriloquist dummy he you know he stumbles on the ruins of like a a stage or a theater and it's just kind of an excuse to show off like the the tricks he hasn't in other movies Mm -hmm. which are funny like they're they're good for entertainment value but they don't seem to feed the rest of the story the way that sherlock jr's gags do yeah at least to me you know i i agree i think because what happens is i believe it's um it's not long after the prison scene yeah it's immediately after that literally, uh, deus ex machina, now there's a storm in town. Yes. Literally. It's like, now there's a storm, and it's a disaster movie. 
And, and what a disaster movie. Oh, okay. It is brilliant. Um, but not storyline brilliant, just stunt brilliant. Uh, you start with, it's the wind and the rain first, and then you have these great shots of everyone kind of like scuttling about into like, there's that one really funny sequence where like everyone's running out of the hospital and you have the guy with his leg in his cast. Yeah. Which also like made me be like, I know it's fake, but for some reason seeing it in that era like made it hurt. The, the idea is great, yeah. Oh, it, yeah, it's all of these people running around with assless nightgowns just <laughs> in a hurricane. And you do have uh, another actually great gag of Buster Keaton's, is, uh, which I guarantee was just some airboat that they mounted up on a truck and stapled into the ground, and then he stood in front of. He slides headfirst, ass in the air, across the mud, and like, rocks himself up and he's like holding onto his ear probably because he perforated something <laughs> uh, and then does some of these really beautiful like running against the wind sequences which um actually gives me gives artsy fartsy reminds me of a clown act from alegria cirque du soleil which is coming back in 2017 tangent <laughs> wow that's really cultured of you i was just gonna say it reminded me of bugs bunny I don't know. There's definitely there's definitely some uh some classic clown acts that it's reminding me of that are actually very beautiful but he executes these these wind tricks really, really, really well. And then there's some fun... Um, I'm not sure what the special effects sequence uh, technique is called. Um, it's not rotoscoping, is it? Uh, but uh, where they actually have the buildings crash on top of Buster. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure how they did that. To me, it kind of looks like they split the frame. Mm, yeah. Um, I could be wrong, though. It's still fun to watch. Like, they just, like, probably did two films and then just, like, cut it, at, cut out copies and just, like, beep, beep. Yeah, because it kind of looks to me like you just, you know, film the house and you kind of tilt the camera to show, like, the angle it's falling and then you can superimpose that on the frame of uh, Buster cowering in fear. There, There's also kind of... it. There's a weird pacing of the wall fall um, gag, which is amazing. That's that's the third of the reason people should see it. Yes, absolutely, it really is. Um, but it's kind of interesting that he does that gag in three different forms. I feel like um, he does it. The first time is actually the biggest one, I think, or maybe it's the second time. But it's the actual like the big one where the house splits open at the top, and you have the old guy who's like looking out, and he jumps through the window onto the bed, mm -hmm. and Buster's at the bottom of it, and they kind of have a little gag about like he probably crushed Buster a little bit, mm -hmm. and then he stands <laughs> up and he's like rubbing his head. Poor Buster and his uh, oh, here's what I was gonna loop it back to. It's like freaking um, Home Alone. Like, if you, if everyone's seen that clip of how many times those house intruders should have been dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could do that with every sequence that Buster, <laughs> Buster Keaton, Keaton actually survived in this film. That would be fantastic, film. yeah. Oh, he should be dead ten times over by the time that this film's done. Um, <clears throat> anyway, but he stands patting his head and the wall falls perfectly around him. And then, I think later, the entire house falls hit, falls on him and he goes through the door. And then there's another sequence where he goes through a freestanding door and then the frame that's holding the freestanding door falls on top of him. Yes, yeah, he does the same joke a couple of times. But it, those are varied enough that I actually enjoy them. I like the one where he walks through the door as it's crumbling down behind him. Mm -hmm. And then, I, I think I've, all of those are more at the, like, the most theatrical of the gags, the most staged of them. And then it kind of transitions a little bit later into this rescue act, um, which is also still harrowing and really interesting. Like when he um, rescues his fiance or girlfriend at that time, girlfriend at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Girlfriend at the time when he does a, like throwing the anchor over and the, um, 
the interesting um the the puppet piloting of um the uh stonewall Stonewall Jackson. jackson that is actually a really cool sequence to watch um that's also, where the sequence starts to get like fused back into story. I think. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's when it kind of tries to come back into its storyline. I also loved his little gag of being like, "Oh, do the knot." Shit, <laughs> that didn't do anything because I don't know my failed Boy Scout yeah. in me is always just like, "Yep." I love the visual of um, not only that they pushed like this entire jailhouse into a river oh, yeah but then that they also just crashed a steamboat through it yeah with somebody inside probably for christ's sake yeah, Maybe. Man, i don't know uh, sure why not uh, <laughs> they were... it feels like someone's inside uh, the whole probably film feels dangerous himself. yeah <laughs> just just so that he could end it all yeah but i mean that's that's an amazing visual i i like all that sequence i'm a lot more forgiving of that stuff than like the early vaudeville stuff with the dummy and you know, I feel there's only so many times that he could just kind of slip in the mud or get blown around by the wind. Like it, it just doesn't feel as tight. And you know, maybe that's by virtue of this is four years after Sherlock Jr. And I think that Keaton feels a little more in command, and he's maybe, you know, there's kind of that saying that your <clears throat> your first couple movies, like you're really hungry and you put a lot more effort into them because like they need to be masterpieces. And then after you've become a superstar, you you kind of slip a little. So I don't want to blame buster keaton because he was wildly successful and new people came to his movies to see crazy stunts because he certainly delivers again you you nailed it this is a disaster sequence on par with anything from the last 20 years but he didn't even credit himself as a director in it that's true but you know with as we mentioned with the implication that everybody kind of already knew true i also don't know that directors were as big a deal than true it was much more about the star of the film so i i liked what you said about the sequence as like a deus ex machina because i agree and i want to veer this back into positive territory because i do think this movie is worth seeing for a lot of people i think i would have a hard time selling it to people who are very opposed to silent movies but it's probably only not for people who are vehemently opposed to watching them i think anybody who's open-minded to watching a silent film should definitely see this movie and I think that even this Deus Ex Machina um, cyclone sequence has a lot of merit because of what the movie is doing with entertaining these ideas of what is acceptable masculinity and what is unacceptable in order to be seen as a man. That's payoff that is set up throughout the entire first two thirds of the movie because, like I mentioned, I see this this movie as the story of a boy who has to become a man because when we first meet Steamboat Bill Jr., he's on the wrong side of the train tracks. He's in clothes that are way too big for him. And his dad is always grabbing him by the hand and carting him around. So if if it's a movie about, you know, Keaton finally becoming a man, I think it's also a, a story about Bill Sr. raising this kid who he hasn't seen since he was a baby. And he is a, an adult, but he's treating him like he's a child. Yes. And I think yeah. that's like that reconciliation. But I think the movie has a lot of gags when they first kind of come together that are fun, are really funny and deal with a lot of ironies because so much of it is just his appearance. That's bothering bill senior. Oh yeah. He, the, the hat gag, the hat, the hat guy, you know, you, you make a guy more masculine by having a dress up montage that like would be repeated again in like the eighties when Julia Roberts has to put on all the gowns, you know, he's just putting on one hat after another, mm-hmm. finding the, the right hat to make him look tough. And also the irony that he looks more like a man by shaving off a mustache 
Oh, yeah, shave that barnacle off his lip. <laughs> That's a good joke. I like that one. Yes. I also wonder if that was poking at Chaplin a little bit. Oh, it might have, yeah. I think it was, because it was. it is a very specific... I forget what that's... It's the Chaplin. Yeah, it's, little Hitler mustache. Yeah, the little Hitler. Which is technically Chaplin's first. It's it is. not fair that Hitler took that over. Uh, you know, not fair a lot of things that Hitler took over, but that's for another <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I also love that his little sailor suit at the end of all of it that everyone finds ridiculous, except for um, Steamboat Bill Jr., who's just like... Well, and it's his um, it's his girlfriend. It's Kitty's idea yeah. to dress him up in that. And I, and I like that commentary, too, because in the in the East, where he comes from, he comes from Boston. That's that's the outfit of a very respectable man. You know, mm-hmm. people, fathers should be so lucky to have their daughters married off to this this beautifully dressed admirable of a person but you know here in the south that's not how a man dresses yeah i I, there are a lot of interesting things about masculinity that this film kind of says that is really interesting nowadays um because i think there's this resurgence of discussions of what is masculinity and what is like toxic masculinity and what is not toxic masculinity and this film does a lot of interesting things where the the father steamboat bill is obviously this this paradigm of this this rough aggressive violent toxic masculinity that is very uh caught up in appearances and um reputation and whereas um kitty it was kitty kitty's the daughter's name yeah, yeah. whereas kitty sees in um steamboat bill jr this uh more sensitive masculinity this this kind of quiet child not not juvenile but this naivete that i think she can relate to that she's like oh i want to help nurture that i want to foster this i want i like this and his um what's steadfastness his um He's just go he's, get him. Yeah, he's resolute. Like, yeah. you just can't keep him down. Yeah, he just keeps going and keeps doing what he's doing. It's, it's very charming. And I think it's a very interesting representation of like, okay, here's power in a different lens. Um, his power and his strength is his resoluteness, his ability to push forward, not how much he yells and screams and like has to how look a certain is it fighting, way. yeah. He's just strong. Which, if if we could look at the the Deus Ex Machina of the Cyclone having some value, I think that that is what that segment is showing. That here we have a force more powerful than anything. We have Mother Nature coming in and doing away with all of the material signifiers, getting rid of wardrobe of material success. It sinks the the new King Steamship that has been threatening Steamboat Bill's, you know, gruff, um, reliable masculinity, mm-hmm. and you know. Buster is just resilient through all of it. You you know, he cannot be destroyed. He just flip-flops his way through a cyclone and then yeah, is is able to save everybody. So his his reconciliation of all of this is not through force but through compassion and rescue by rescuing his would-be fiance, by rescuing his dad, by rescuing his would-be father-in-law and bringing them all together in this event that shows them how petty they've all been and how mm-hmm. artificial all of these divides between them really are. And I wonder if there's something to be said about the fact that um, I think the king also represents the antithesis of like this, the the prior mentioned toxic masculinity. I think the king steamboat uh, kind of represents the overly grandiose, the almost like French bourgeois of, sure. of just like ridiculously foppish. And that's what um, Steamboat Bill Sr. can't stand. And in that... Um, 
in that disaster sequence, it's the Steamboat Bill bloodline, both the sensitive side of Steamboat Bill Jr. and the resilience of the old Stonewall Jackson Steamboat that survives and weathers. I think it's kind of interesting that it says like both these, this um, modern sensitive masculinity and the old world just like, no, we we're tough we we survive this we are stonewall jackson Mm -hmm. we get through this this is my river while still kind of showing that it's still showing the problems of the toxic masculinity side of it right which i like because i think like um some older films especially in the 30s and 40s definitely show some really bass backwards um ideas of masculinity and i thought that it was really interesting to see a 1920s film which I feel like resonates pretty well today. Yeah, because again, the the triumph of the movie is these symbols of like the old world with the two fathers are put in their place and Steamboat Bill Jr. finally takes matters into his own hands, rescues the priest and says, this is my life, I'm with Kitty, I am who I am, I saved all your butts, now I'm getting married and you can't tell me what to do anymore, I'm my own man. Which isn't to say that any female character in this film exists anything beyond an object. That is true. She def- Kitty definitely does not get the same kind of victory that the unnamed girl in Sherlock Jr. does in solving the mystery herself. Kitty is uh, very much a damsel in distress. But also, uh, one thing, uh, another unversed silent film watcher thing. My God, th- th- these silent film actresses are charming. Oh, her eyes are the brightest. I was smitten with her the first time she pulls up in that car. Yeah, no, I, I, definitely... Uh, an interesting study in the original silent film starlets i really like her as um as kind of just a driving force again uh, the the problem is that a lot of female characters in these early movies are more representations of the woman forces yeah but but still you know her her acting as somebody who is inviting him to cross these divides and the, the shot that i think of that i love that i think kind of embodies this idea i have that this is a great story about how hard it is to fit in or find your place in the world is after he's got his nice admiral clothes and he's doing the rounds on the <laughs> rickety ship, which small caveat to one of my favorite jokes in the movie when he knocks the life preserver accidentally off the deck and it sinks straight to the bottom of the river. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the two boats are parked right next to each other. So the front deck of one and the back deck of the other are just, you know, a hop away from each other. And, there's there's really great direction here because you have Bill Jr. and Kitty on, you know, their side, this Romeo and Juliet thing. And it's all one shot where we see them in the middle and the camera will tilt up to look at, you know, King Sr. up on the deck, you know, get out of here. You don't belong in this. And, you know, going back up the other direction to Bill Sr. on his deck. I think it's this really great visual representation of the tug of war between these two. And then, you know, the the great irony that Bill Jr. is not masculine enough to be on his father's boat, so he does not fit in with his father, yet he's too much of his father to fit in on King's boat. He, you know, there's there's no place he fits in, and so that joke, which is, again, just a fun kind of throwaway gag of him thrown, being thrown back and forth between the decks and dragging one of the petty officers in with him into the water, also works as this metaphor of how he can't win. Like He's just trying to find a place in the world, but nobody wants him. What will get him one of the things he wants, whether it's to fit in with his dad or to get the girl, you know, what will gain him one of those will lose him the other. And the movie, you know, again, at the end is about taking command of his own life and saying, I will have both of these 
And, you know, honestly, I feel like I am maybe underselling this as a comedy because as we've talked about it, we've pointed out a couple of jokes that we actually really like. Before we started, I said my reason I don't think I could recommend this to everybody is that it doesn't really succeed as a comedy because I don't feel like I laughed out loud as much at the jokes in Steamboat Bill as I did in Sherlock Jr., which just had me rolling. I think I could only think of one at the beginning from Steamboat Bill that actually I love, which is when he shows up in his admiral clothes and the first mate hands his dad the gun and says no jury would convict you. Which had me rolling on the floor. It's a really... And and like you said, it's all pantomime. The way that guy like hands him the gun and kind of just like, eh. which is funny. And but I do think that that's one of those moments where the title card makes it even funnier. The it title does. card makes it such a great punchline because he hands the gun and there's this eye roll of being like, you want to? And then the title card's just like, no one would know. Yeah, it's like even the title <laughs> card doesn't say shoot him, so that way we could end this. It's this really funny, just under the line subtext. Yeah, that's beautiful. But um. But that's about the funniest part in it. It, it is. So you, you said that you see this movie as um, it's, it's a skeleton for gags rather than a story. Has anything I've said helped qualm that? Or do you still feel that it's pretty fast and loose with any real meaning? My thing about it is that it definitely tries to say a lot of things. But it seems like I don't, I don't know what it, what it cared more about. And it seems like, and I don't know what order it was shot in, what order it was written in, because God knows films like these might have been written while they were being shot. Um, Feels like they would have done the wall fall gag last in case it wound up crushing (laughs) Buster. Truth. It seems like we had this setup for a really interesting discussion of the outsider and of masculinity and of like finding your place at the beginning of the film. And then it turns into the prison sequence with um, Steamboat Bill Sr. And then it just turns into the gag fest. Mm -hmm. And prison sequence, another great ironic dig at masculinity that the thing that's going to get the dad out of prison is the baking. Yes. The the files into the loaves of bread. The, The loaf of bread, which that's another one of those guys. It goes on a little bit too long, but it is pretty funny. Yeah. Um, but I definitely think because you because you get that moment of victory where he finally you know shows the dad what's in it and then he says well maybe I'll leave and he gets to relish in his dad finally saying like no don't go I really need you to come back yeah that 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 is a moment of catharsis I the second half of the film is definitely just an it's 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 a gag skeleton that that that's all it is it 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 tries to set up something more in the first half but I think the disaster sequence becomes something so huge of a spectacle. That is amazing, but I'd say, what, 20 minutes of those, not, maybe not 20, but 15 minutes of those gags don't have any purpose. Um, there's, you, you have this whole sequence where um, right out of the prison, um, uh, Buster gets clobbered on the back of the head and he's admitted to the, um, to the hospital. And then you have this whole sequence where he's stumbling around with an ice pack on his head through and barely missing all of these um, terrible incidents. That's where the wall fall gag happens. And then he somewhat comes to, and then when he's a little more lucid, he becomes the savior and saves everyone in the storm. But it, it's, it's just a bunch of gags. I'm really inclined to agree with you. I'm way more invested in everything that leads up to the cyclone more because of all those things that I think it is saying about how hard it is to fit in between conflicting worldviews and to what it means to be masculine. And then, you know, I, I see the value of this, though, because um, 
there's not a lot of wow factor in that first two thirds. It's very story driven. Uh, like I said, I think if you approach this more as a social melodrama more than a comedy, I think you're in a better headspace to really appreciate it. But we've said it over and over. He really delivers when this sequence hits because he pulls out all the stops to deliver a wow factor, which, you know, if that's what you wanted to come for, I don't think it disappoints. It just takes you a little long to get there. It's kind of structurally a reverse um, Romeo and Juliet in that uh, Romeo and Juliet is a comedy for the first half and then a tragedy the second half. And that's how it like plays the nicest. Whereas oh. this film is very much kind of like it is a melodrama in the first half. And I think it, it, it's aided by being seen as that. And then it turns into a comedy in the second half. And then it tries to tie itself back together at the very end with the rescue sequence and then throwing the life preserver out to the priest or something. Yeah, you got you to gotta save the priest so he can marry you. Yes. Which is a missed opportunity because uh, his dad is a ship's captain. You could... I don't want to tell Buster Keaton how to write his movie. <laughs> I, I will say I've seen much more shoddily thrown together resolutions to movies that kind of go off the rails in the third act and try to bring everything together. I do still think that there's a really nice image of the two fathers reconciling that King's entire fortune, his bank, his hotel, his steamboat have all Crumbled. been destroyed. And, you know, this family is now kind of the only thing that he's going to have left. Like, I think that it it is a little like quick, but I still think it's a nice little bow to put on everything. I think the movie still ends in a very good spot. Well, yeah, and at least the ending makes sense for the 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 film accepts the fact that and now there's a storm. Yeah, and so, and now everything is about the storm, and I think that's also what hurts it. But at least it follows that logic of being like, sure, yeah. As soon as the storm hits, kind of everything at the beginning of the film isn't nearly as important as just the storm happens, Buster Keaton's a savior, and there we go, and now King's fortune is gone, his only family is with the Steamboat Bills, there you go. It's probably even better set up than we're giving it credit for because the um, the whole joke throughout the first half of the movie is the first strong wind is going to blow the Stonewall Jackson right out of the water. True. And then it's the only thing that survives the, the deck. It gets to keep on sailing. And that entire city's gone. Yeah, no, for real. <laughs> and it's, again, it's so <laughs> impressive because a couple of shots look like model work to me. I don't know, like, how much we've caught up by this point four years later if we're starting to do some rear projection and stuff. But a lot of this does still look like full-scale buildings getting demolished. Oh, yeah, like full-scale buildings that, like, were intentionally built to barely hold together. Yeah. Which is terrifying. I'm always impressed. I think it's the one that actually falls on him that we were talking about earlier that um, maybe they split the frame. But after he walks out the door... And the sighting just like explodes off of it. Yeah, like it it just crumbles. And I think that it's such an interesting image to see in one frame this just kind of fully formed house. And then two seconds later, it's every individual plank that it used to be made up of is now separated. Yeah, no, that was absolutely impressive to see the construction of it. Yeah, as, as an effects reel, I think it's still very impressive. Um, and again, I think fits into modern sensibilities because I hear a lot that um, some movies that we love, big blockbusters, we feel, oh, the first two thirds is all character driven, but we have to stop everything because a blue beam has to shoot in the sky and we have to have a big fight. Well, here's Steamboat Bill Jr., a 90-year-old movie doing this, and I think still doing a pretty decent job of it. So oh, it yeah. is- it's still a spectacle. 
Yeah. Uh, but I think that it's the same reason why I'd vote a lot of modern films, um, Cinetrust, is that it has the capacity to say a lot of really interesting things that are culturally relevant, and how amazing for a film that's nearly 100 years old um, to be doing that yeah. still today. And then it kind of sacrifices um, a lot of the emotional intent for the sake of spectacle, which is nonetheless spectacular, but kind of is shoehorned there to appease the audience, it feels like, or to show off. And, sure. then, and then the film ends up being delightful and not as important. It's, it is kind of a, a bigger, brasher version of Keaton himself that he... He wanted to show you what he could do. Um, and in some films, I think he's just better at weaving that throughout the story than others. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think this one is still well worth people's time. I, again, I think the only people I would not recommend this movie to are people who are just vehemently against um, silent movies. I think anybody who has any sort of open mind to watching them, I think it's still really worthwhile. It's a lot of fun. There's some fun characters i think the family dynamics are are really great and it's a spectacle i think i could easily recommend watching the storm sequence to anyone i can that that 10 minute sequence from from the moment buster keaton wakes up in the hospital that that is ripped off of the hinges mm. all the way through to whenever the, the steamboat bill senior comes back i think that's a sequence everyone should see just for the sheer craft of it it's it is impressive but um but not as beautifully tight as Sherlock Jr. I agree. Yeah. And again, Sherlock Jr. to me is just some of the tightest, most accomplished filmmaking of this era, maybe even of all time. Like it, it really is a movie that I feel cements Buster Keaton as like one of the three iconic masters of silent cinema with Charlie Chaplin and Harold Lloyd. He might still be my favorite of the three. Um, Cha Chaplin's so great. Like it's thank goodness we have all of these guys, but I was really glad for you to have picked uh, Keaton movies to talk about this guy who's a little underrated um, because obviously, as we've been talking, he has a lot on his mind, even if he's trying to just do like a spectacle, kind of a wow factor to make it, you know, your ticket worth the price of admission. He's accomplished. Oh, absolutely. He's a true auteur. And just talking about the craft of film and watching these, diving back to these it's amazing to see how much, and of course some of this could just be the mastering and the quality of the film reels that we could salvage, but the difference in quality of just the film, it's not the story, not the structure, but just the, the, the preservation of the film and the shooting from um, Sherlock Jr. is definitely a little rougher. It didn't have as much as steady of a tripod on all of the cameras. Mm -hmm. um, the the color, not the color, but, you know, the burns were a little out of place in some spots. Um, then you go into Steamboat Bill Jr. And it's amazing to see how four years can change the quality of film mm -hmm. um, and the special effects that he added to it. That is pretty amazing. And I thought that was really interesting. And one thing to tag onto that, like the evolution of the four years, is as much as I love Sherlock Jr. and think it's a perfect movie, I think the camera work in Steamboat Bill Jr. is much more confident and accomplished. Yes, um, the panning camera shots were actually really good. Uh, the 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 opening shot of the rivers is fantastic, and again tells the whole story. We ha we are introduced to not only our setting, but we instantly roll into this big celebration for the new steamboat, like the movie just picks up and goes. Yeah, um, in Steamboat Bill Jr., you don't feel the guy cranking 
the the, yeah. the wheel as much in Sherlock Jr. You definitely have moments where you feel you feel the um, the real man, whatever his name would have been, cranking just the, the cameraman. Yeah, the cameraman cranking it and just like trying to keep everything in frame. That's true. Sherlock Jr. does feel a lot more like um, a silent short that kind of got a little more expanded, or maybe two shorts that were just beautifully meshed together. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. It's not a bad thing at all, but you know, by the time we get to Steamboat Bill, he is well-established in making full-length movies, yeah, and Steamboat Bill definitely feels like a feature. Absolutely. And then that's also a little bit to its detriment and why it's a sin of trust. Yeah. Because I think um, it, it's not as much as a beautiful little polished gem. Yeah, I think, I think personally some a little more liberal use of the editing scissors might have done Steamboat Bill some favors, but not too much. You know, I don't, I still don't feel like it's an overlong movie. Again, it's only an hour, 10 minutes. You can watch both of these movies in under two hours. Yeah. Which we highly recommend because again, you can just find them on YouTube. Mm-hmm. We're coming up on time. Is there anything else you would like to say in defense of either of them? I am interested in silent movies now and I'm going to be watching some more. What's your next stop? Ooh, what is my next stop? Yeah, actually, I'm going to hand that to you. What do you think you'd recommend? So you haven't seen like anything? I, I've literally... I'm blank canvas. So you definitely got to do Chaplin. Chaplin, um, yes. I personally would recommend Gold Rush. Um, City Lights and Modern Times are also his, his big ones. Uh, I think Gold Rush is probably the best intro. Um, for Harold Lloyd, I think you should do Safety Last. He's the other guy in the trinity of silent movie holiness. Safety Last, I think, is his best one. And uh, if you're into the exhilarating stunts of Buster Keaton, Safety Last is going to have some really fun stuff for you. Nice. And then uh, I think with silent movies, I think the comedies work best, but I think um, you also kind of have to delve into like the the dramas. Horror did very well by silent movies, so I think the original Phantom of the Opera is one you should definitely check out. And for epic sci-fi awesomeness, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Yes, which I have seen many clips of, but I'm truly terrible. I've I've only seen the uh, oh good lord. The, the, the japanese metropolis <laughs> okay yeah this is the very different yes yeah, very um, different it's it's long so with silent movies there's no middle ground they're they're either like an hour or three hours like there's no <laughs> there's no middle ground <laughs> so you'll have to go up against that but uh that, that would be like kind of my starter list so if anybody out there listening silent movie aficionados um message us on uh, social media if you're on twitter instagram facebook whatever you can email us at cinemas at gmail.com tell us what fish should do as he continues his silent movie quest. Yes, please. Well, thank you so much. Again, that was that was really nice. We'd never done any silent movies before. These are now our oldest films that we've covered, and I had a ton of fun ap- uh, appreciating the craft and this genius whom I love. So thank you so much for bringing that to the table, Fish. Oh, thank you so much for letting me watch these films and for having this opportunity to like really dive into this. This was a real treat to see a, kind of the infancy of film and not not just the infancy feel, but how adept these artists really were and how much trailblazers they were. Yeah. It was really amazing. Very in control for people who were being pioneers. It is impressive. So we wish you luck uh, as you get two assholes and a mic launched. I can't wait to be a part of that launch package. Oh, it's we'll going to be great. We'll be sure to send shout outs and stuff on social media. So thanks again for coming on the show, and thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We now turn it over to you. The must-see status of these movies are in your hands. Get over to this episode's post at cinemas.com to cast your vote on if these are going to make the essential cinema list or not. We are going to have that poll open until January 13th at midnight.
And one last favor, if you're listening to us on iTunes, we would also very much appreciate it if you could take a few moments to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That not only helps our show gain more visibility, more importantly, we get to see what you think of the show and what we can do to improve it. And if you're not on iTunes, we'd love your feedback just as much. You can reach out to us again on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, as well as just email us at cinemus at gmail.com. And as a New Year's surprise, you do not have to wait two weeks for our next episode. So we hope you will join us next Tuesday on January 8th as Anthony Badger and myself wrap up season one of Cinemusts with our top 10 films of the year show. That's an annual tradition that I love. I am so very excited for it. So we hope that you will join us as well as let us know what 2018 movies made your top 10. I'm very excited to see uh, what I missed because it's uh, it's crunch time for us now. Fish, again, thank you. Do you have any last words? Uh, I like movies! <laughs> Happy 2019, everybody. Remember to keep a straight face. <laughs> <laughs>